Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to episode number 15 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. Uh, this is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. Today we're joined by Kamal Patel, who's the director of uh, a website that I'm a really big fan of. It's examine.com. So first of all, Kamal, I just want to say thanks very much for, um, for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So thank you very much. For, for people who are not uh, familiar with examine.com can you kind of give them a little bit of, of background information about what the page is and um, what the respective background of all the people involved are and, and kind of what the mission of the of the page is sure so uh, about four or five years ago um, our founders Saul Orwell and Curtis Frank were on the website Reddit uh, which has a pretty active sub forum for fitness um, and they go over a lot of nutrition papers as well and uh, they both came to the conclusion that there wasn't really any good central repository for nutrition studies and supplement studies on the internet. So there's definitely a lot of great websites that uh, have articles about nutrition issues and, and training, but there's usually not enough manpower to do it systematically. And then some percentage of the time, the you know website, if you have a lot of people, you need to pay them, so you need to sell something. Uh, sometimes that something is either a supplement or ads, you know, uh, for a supplement company or products or your own training ad or whatever. So uh, there was this gap and they decided to start a website meant to systematically collect research. Um, so the way we do things at Examine is um, we're always on the lookout for new papers. We uh, both actively scan and we have passive searches set up um, for popular topics like creatine, fish oil, and that kind of thing. Um, and then we have a, a few different layers that the research goes through. So the initial researcher reads the full text. Uh, we never just go by the abstract. Or actually, some people just go by the title. Um, and then we uh, collect all that evidence. We put it in a thing called the human effect matrix, which is only randomized human trials. So no rat studies, no cohort studies, case control studies, or surveys. Um, and then we generally tell whether the studies are high quality or lower quality, uh, and then we describe them. So that's our meat and potatoes. Um, and then we also do a few other things, but it's all around evidence. Uh, we don't really have our own opinions. Uh, we, our opinion is what the evidence currently says. And, and to that extent, do you kind of bounce uh, opinions off one another to come to some sort of consensus as a group uh, when you give your opinion about stuff? Yeah, so uh, we're always, you know, we use Google Docs a lot because we're always responding to uh, statements we made to make sure that they're accurate and criticizing each other uh, because none of us should be able to get away with uh, either saying things that aren't quite true or overextending papers or anything like that. Um, and this especially comes to light because you can't be one person and know everything about nutrition. Um, Nutrition isn't just nutrition, it relates to a bunch of different health topics. So uh, we have a variety of people from physicians to um, lab researchers to our lead editor has a doctorate in pharmacy. Um, my background is in public health and nutrition. So uh, we try to have a lot of different viewpoints uh, so that we can dissect the study and tell people if it applies to real life because a lot of studies don't apply as much to actual practice as you might think, and you really need to read the full text to find out. So, kind of jumping on, on what you've just said, and you've, you've touched on a couple of things already, but could you highlight some of the, 
the cardinal sins that typical nutritional supplement companies um, commit, whether knowingly or unknowingly, that you think is, is inappropriate? So uh, the first one is actually, it's, it's an issue with everybody, but particularly with supplement companies, and it's that when you see a study result that's come out, just because it's good doesn't mean that the topic is resolved because uh, at my old job, I used to work for a place called Evidence-Based Practice Center. So in the UK, sort of the equivalent is uh, NICE. Um, they do evidence reviews for the government because you guys have an integrated system. But here in the US, we don't have integrated healthcare systems. So there's a bunch of private health insurers, private hospitals, uh, the government thought that it might be an issue that, um, you know, there's billions of dollars spent on Medicare, Medicaid and programs like that. But uh, there needs to be a good way to collect all the research and find out what it all says to inform policy. So there's 12 or 13 of these centers. I worked at one of them. My first project was uh, informing the vitamin D guidelines in 2010. So what I found from that is part of our job is um, whenever you perform a clinical trial, you submit your protocol to this website, clinicaltrials.gov, which is the US government's uh, website for clinical trials. And you have to go over the methods, uh, what results you're trying to find, who the people are you're studying, and, and all that stuff. So we went through those entries, both for vitamin D, other nutrients, uh, to see what entries were missing. Turns out, a lot of the time when a research study comes out, things are a little bit different than what the protocol said. So for example, like let's say you do a study on vitamin D and depression, they might say we're going to look at these two different indexes for mental health. And then when the study comes out, they looked at four different indexes and they found positive results for maybe like three or four outcomes. My suspicion is for a lot of those, it's sort of uh, outcome fishing. And that happens a lot for supplements probably too. So they'll submit their protocol to clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, the trial happens. And then as a reader, you don't really know whether the results are what they wanted to get. Uh, whether there are some results out of a, a total uh, umbrella of results that weren't that hot, or even if they slightly altered the protocol so that it was more likely that they would get positive results. And the only way to know for sure is to go to clinicaltrials.gov, search to see if there were other trials, and also see if there were papers that were rejected by journals because you know it's much easier to get a paper accepted if your result is positive than if it's null. So one of the main things about supplement studies is that you don't know what the total universe of studies was. You only know that one study and supplement companies will never say, you know, there were three studies that showed positive effect, three that showed a null effect and one that didn't have good methods. They'll only harp on that one study and it's a big issue and it's something I don't think we'll ever really be able to get over. And just from what you said there, an example that springs to mind for me is, um, you know, Dave Asprey, the so-called uh, bulletproof exec. It seems to me that all of his studies, it's um, always from an animal study or it's just a one-off finding or, or something similar like that. And a, another guy that comes to mind for me was a guy that managed to get a, a paper published on how chocolate made people lose weight. And like you said, it was just from trying to fish from a, a whole bunch of different uh, outcomes. Yeah, and what's crazy is that the chocolate guy, like it was pretty easy for him. It wasn't a struggle. He didn't have to keep resubmitting over and over again. Um, you can publish in a ghost journal, a predatory journal, fairly easily. Um, and as far as gurus uh, citing studies, the bar for the level of evidence you need is so low that if you know what a p-value is, 
you can say anything you want. You could get a rat study, a pig study, postmenopausal woman study, and apply it to young male lifters. I mean, it's really it's a the internet has both made it easy to learn a lot more and easy to be a huckster. Um, and it's hard because the earlier you put out your blog post on a certain topic, or the more stuff you sell, the more followers you get. Um, <clears throat> it looks like you're important, but it doesn't mean that everything you say is accurate. And I guess as well, exercising caution and voicing caution isn't as sexy, and it doesn't it doesn't sell as much either. No, it's not. And you know that's something that we struggle with every week because <clears throat> I went to business school, so I somewhat know that <clears throat> like you know quarterly reports are important, and uh, it's really what you're doing now. It's not really the whole progress of research that's the most important. But then when I got into this job, I realized we need to make money too, you know, and I need to have a salary so I can pay for my ludicrously expensive apartment in San Francisco. So to get that done, like, <clears throat> we can't have blog posts that are 3,000 words long. Um, <clears throat> I would like to, but like our last one was somewhere around 2,500 and that was almost too long. But I'd like to put qualifiers on everything we say. It's just people's attention spans are getting lower and lower every year, including mine. And that's probably not going to change anytime soon. Yeah, I know the same feeling. Like every time I put out a video that's more than five minutes long, the the, the viewership just dies. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, that Doesn't that suck? I mean, it, like you can't do exactly what you want. You have to always somewhat keep an eye on your audience and pros and cons, I guess. Yeah. So kind of following on from that and trying to raise the bar of, of what constitutes robust scientific evidence. Can you elaborate on the criteria that you guys use and the, the, the letter grading system of what constitutes that evidence at each level? Sure. So at the, at the very top is a well-done meta-analysis. So meta-analysis statistically pulls the results of several studies. Um, <clears throat> But even that is something that I think there's some misconceptions about. So let's say like 50% of nutrition information junkies know what a meta-analysis is. About 49% might think that if you have a meta-analysis and it shows a positive effect, then case is closed. But the case is not closed. So a good example of this is there was a, a review done of reviews about vitamin D a couple years ago. And it was by this guy, John Ioannidis, um, who published a very important groundbreaking study a few years ago that the media headline was 90% of, uh, of medical studies are wrong or something like that. And what that was about is that when you reproduce a trial, when you do a similar trial later on, often the results are not the same, which means there was something wrong with the methodology or the interpretation or the study design, um, and you can't trust a lot of what you read. So this guy wrote a review, an umbrella review of vitamin D meta-analyses. So meta-analysis is a review of individual papers an umbrella review is very rare, and it's a review of reviews. And his conclusion is vitamin D actually doesn't have much evidence for helping outcomes, you know, diseases. So I was a little bit critical of that, and the reason is that, yeah, so when you combine that many papers, or oftentimes a lot more than that, you lose a lot of granularity. So the subjects are often quite different. You can't really statistically control for specifics of heterogeneity, only like a general number that you put on it. So um, you could be combining 12 or 15 studies and really only two of those studies are addressing the population that's reading the paper and have a quality enough methodology that you should rely on them. 
And that's not really a resolved issue in meta-analysis. So even though meta-analysis is at the top of the evidence hierarchy, there's a lot of flaws with meta-analysis. Right below there is, you know, a randomized controlled clinical trial that's double-blinded. Um, <clears throat> now, what we look for is when they do those studies, <clears throat> do they, for example, have a crossover design? You know, is the intervention tested in a subject and do the same subjects get placebo because that controls for a lot of the variability that you might get in a normal randomized trial? Um, do they use uh, a dose that's, you know, normal? Uh, like, do you use green tea extract in what a normal person might get at uh, the supermarket in one or two pills? Or do you use like 10 or 15 pills worth? Um, another thing is oftentimes uh, there's either a high dropout rate or the analysis doesn't really account for dropout that well. Uh, so when you combine all these um, different factors, then you realize that well over half of studies can't really be directly interpreted. So that's why you have to read the full text. And it's tough because you have to get behind a paywall, be at a university or be independently wealthy. You have to have a ton of time, um, and people don't really have things like that, so that's where we come. So then, but below that, you've got, is it C, D, and E? What, what are those criteria? So, um, this differs according to the topic. So let's say uh, fish oil um, versus creatine. So creatine is somewhat easy because it's a discrete intervention. You know, you have certain milligrams or grams of creatine monohydrate and you test it against placebo and you can't really tell whether placebo is like creatine. With fish oil, you you can tell uh, because sometimes fish burps um, and also different types of fish oil and, and that kind of thing. So when we look at the full text of studies, some of the, the other things that we look for are... Now, this doesn't often come up in the study. You have to look at the appendices, but um, <clears throat> like the baseline characteristics of participants often is not as comparable as you would like. And if you're comparing different populations, then that skews results fairly heavily. Another thing, and this is uh, EFG and, and beyond, um, and we can't do this with every single paper, is the statistical methods for papers also differs quite a lot. Like it's not just a normal t-test or what you might learn in stats 101. Things can get very complicated. Um, and if you're a supplement company, you don't necessarily want a very hard-hitting statistician to be the person who's writing for your paper or informing your paper because it could somewhat mitigate or destroy your results. So we try to look you know, deeper into those issues to see if papers apply. Um, and that's sort of what constitutes our day-to-day, -day, like these really nitty-gritty uh, things that you have to look into appendices for. It's, it's grinding, but it's what we do. Now, following on from that, what what is the stuff that really passes the test for you guys in terms of, of popular supplements that are out there available to, to athletes and coaches? So uh, the number one, which most everybody knows is creatine, and that's creatine monohydrate, not other forms. Um, but when you get beyond that, it's, it's a little bit of a crapshoot. So <clears throat> probably the most used supplements are creatine, protein powder, multivitamin, fish oil, glucosamine, chondroitin. Um, so going through those, uh, creatine is a little bit of a no-brainer. The, the two things that are an issue is uh, there's a certain percentage of non-responders. Sometimes that percentage is cut down if you take it with meals or with uh, carbs. Uh, second thing is that um, <clears throat> there's some very low-level evidence for uh, creatine and potential mechanisms for hair loss. And 
This isn't a huge issue because it hasn't really been tracked in in big trials, like over a period of time. There hasn't been um, observations of hair loss, but there was one small study that uh, showed that the mechanisms exist. I'm a little bit skeptical of this because uh, oftentimes people who take creatine happen to be people who have more muscle and people who have more muscle are just more anabolic in general and that is linked to hair loss independently. So that's creatine. Um, <clears throat> fish oil, it's something that I've changed my opinion on a couple of times. Um, so back in the day, uh, fish oil was one of the first supplements I used. Uh, <clears throat> when I was in college, the first time I lifted a weight was in 1999, um, I weighed 135 pounds, um, you know, a very skinny, skinny fat. And this guy who lived next to me randomly was a power lifter in my dorm. So um, he told me from very early on that what you do at the gym doesn't matter quite as much as what you do in the kitchen. So I took that to heart. I tried to learn a lot about nutrition. Um, I took fish oil and then I replaced it with flaxseed oil. So most people know that uh, the omega-3s, from plants like flaxseed are not usually what you want because they convert at a very low percentage to the fatty acids that you do want. Um, but even fish oil a few years ago, I changed my mind a little bit about. So like the evidence for fish oil and a lot of outcomes, including heart outcomes, depression, pain, athletic performance, it's a lot weaker than most people would think. And if you control for the fact that a lot of those studies are done on people who are either sick um, or not really that active, then that reduces the evidence level even further. Um, a newer thing is krill oil. It's become popular in the last couple of years because uh, the EPA from krill oil is more easily absorbed um, and it has an antioxidant, astaxanthin. Um, but krill oil was just found to have a negative effect on insulin sensitivity, um, albeit in uh, people who aren't really that healthy, so it might not apply to everybody. So. Um, my general opinion on fish oil now, especially for athletes, is that it doesn't really matter. Um, if you take fish oil and you have noticeable improvement in something, whether it's mental or physical, um, at the gym, recovery, whatever, that's okay because it does have a little bit of evidence for delayed onset muscle soreness. But um, fish oil is something that replicates what you can get normally in a diet. If you eat a diet with either fish or grass-fed meat or pastured eggs, you can get enough omega-3s. Um, there's really no reason to get an extra like one or two or three grams from fish oil unless you're doing a, a targeted intervention for a certain condition or something like that. Um, so the, the third one is protein powder. Um, protein powder is interesting because I think what this somewhat rare occurrence I've seen recently is, um, if you don't mind my asking, how old are you? I'm, I'm 29. Okay, so that's perfect. So. Uh, I've seen some people when they hit 30 uh, and then they get into their mid late thirties, uh, things change. So, you know, you start getting hurt more often at the gym and, um, you, sometimes you have families and that kind of stuff. Uh, you're thinking about your career, there's more stress <clears throat> and, so, and sometimes people have been taking whey protein powder for eons, you know, ever since they were kids and chose that instead of mass gainer 3000. But Probably people should pay a little bit more attention to the type of protein that they eat. Um, one reason is that the important thing about the whey protein might not be its amino acid profile. It might be that certain often more expensive whey proteins that are cold processed um, 
have more cysteine. Uh, that's the cysteine with the EI um, rather than the, the other cysteine. And that can promote glutathione uh, production in the body. And when you get older, it's a lot more important to support your endogenous antioxidant system because the foods that you eat, whether they're you know high on, it, on the antioxidant scale or not, blueberries, acai, that kind of thing, it's not nearly as important as supporting your endogenous system. And that's things like glutathione and um, copper-related antioxidants. So uh, whey protein is one of the only food-based sources. Um, raw plants are one, but much lesser degree. Uh, raw eggs are one, but not a lot of people want to eat raw eggs. Uh, so there's some untapped opportunity there for whey protein to contribute to health. Um, and the other thing is that quality whey proteins can also sometimes improve gut health in certain people. So it might be these extra benefits, not the, the amino acid profile or the total amount of protein you're eating or whether you're eating it in the anabolic window or not that matter. Um, so I think a second look at protein might be beneficial. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember what the other things were that I mentioned, uh, but they're not nearly as important. Uh, I think it was just a multivitamin. Would you say that's just to kind of fill in any nutritional gaps that are there? Yeah, um, so targeting with vitamins is a lot more important. Um, the things that a multivitamin is missing are pretty important. So uh, nutrients that are bulky, like magnesium, um, they're not included in large enough amounts because like the magnesium pill that I used to take, uh, it's two pills and you get 50% of the recommended allowance um, and it's a highly absorbable form. That isn't the case with multivitamins. Often you get magnesium oxide, uh, which can cause stomach upset because it's not absorbed very well. Um, and then uh, if you do supplement in a targeted form, sometimes magnesium helps relaxation, it helps sleep and things like that. And sleep is a lot more important for gains than you know, the amount of protein that you eat, whether it's 30 or 35 grams. So um, multivitamins don't really cover that. Multivitamins are also a little bit arbitrary. So the recommended daily allowance is set for, you know, sedentary people. So everybody's levels should be a little bit different. A man is different than a woman. An older woman is different than a younger woman. People with different conditions are different. So it's a lot better to uh, see what you're missing, fill in those gaps, see what your issues are and supplement uh, due to that rather than taking a multivitamin. Another thing is that when you take a multivitamin, it's a little bit of a shortcut. When you look at nutrients individually, uh, sometimes you can stumble across some really cool things. Like, um, <clears throat> have you ever seen the show House? House yes. MD? Yeah. So, uh, so you know House's thing, right? His, um, his demeanor. He's a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the uh, reason that House is a jerk is because his leg hurts a lot. Um, he had a, a, a medical emergency when he was playing around with golf, um, and now his muscle is a bit destroyed in one of his legs, and he limps. Um, and it hurts a lot. So um, back in the day, I was an aspiring pain researcher, and uh, I was also in nutrition. So one of the things I found intersects those two areas really well, and it actually came from House. So I think in around 2008 or nine, I saw an episode of House where a patient got really angry at him and uh, shot him. I think that's what happened. So um, <clears throat> House was put under a coma by his uh, boss slash love interest, the dean of medicine at the hospital. And um, when he awoke, he was really angry because he didn't give permission to be put under a coma. But he also didn't have any pain anymore. And that's because uh, he had been put under a ketamine coma. Uh, ketamine is often thought of as a recreational drug, but 
It's also on the World Health Organization list of essential medicines because um, it has a bunch of uses. Um, and it's also uh, serves as anesthesia. So a ketamine cola, um, <clears throat> what it can do is somewhat reset the brain if you have severe pain conditions, such as houses. Um, and it turns out it's the only somewhat reliable way to treat the, one of the worst pain conditions, if not the worst one in the world, called um, RSD-CRPS, reflex sympathetic dystrophy slash complex regional pain syndrome, two different names for the same thing. Um, so if you like uh, twist your ankle, you break your ankle, you hurt your knee, um, accidents like that, about 1% or less of the time, this condition happens and it's uh, essentially a flaw in the sympathetic nervous system where the nervous system goes haywire and you keep building up more and more pain rather than controlling it and there's almost nothing you can do. But what they found is that if you go under a ketamine coma, if you don't die, then when you come out, there's a good chance that you don't have pain anymore. So when I read that, then I was intrigued. I wasn't in pain research yet. When I got into pain research, I saw this note in my uh, Evernote file. And I was like, you know, where did I run across this? And it turned out there was a study of people with wrist fractures, a randomized trial, so a very good design, that showed that, you know, this is a terrible condition. Nobody would ever want to have it. There's no way to really treat it because you can't do it in the U.S. or U.K. You have to go to Germany or Mexico and it costs $20,000 to get a ketamine coma. But uh, there's also no real good way to prevent it. Turns out vitamin C, just at a dose of 500 milligrams a day over the course of 30 days, is a great way to prevent this condition if you do hurt your knee really bad or twist your ankle really bad or tear something in your shoulder. And, you know, it's something that you might really never run across if you're just someone who takes your protein powder and lots of vitamin every day and doesn't think twice about things. And uh, you might think you would never run across this condition, but... I randomly had a Facebook friend who developed this and I wish I would have told her because it got drowned out by people saying, you know, why don't you drink more bone broth? Why don't you, you know, take fish oil? But there are some specific nutrients that you can take as treatments. It's just they get lost in the shuffle because there's so much other clutter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I, um, I wanted to ask you about, some, some research that I saw recently at the, the Boston Sports Medicine uh, Performance Group Seminar. There was a, a researcher called um, Al Smith, and he talked a lot about the, the new research coming out in relationship to um, androgen profile and performance in athletes. And you know the, the research that he presented was, was really interesting. You can pretty much draw a straight line between um, uh, free testosterone and athletic performance. You can kind of predict where people are going to finish. Um, you can predict adaptation and all that stuff. And obviously the goal for, for coaches who aren't doping their athletes is, is to try and maximize um, the androgen profile of their athletes. Is there any nutritional strategies that you, you think would be effective in that? You know, my hunch is that it's, it's kind of fixed, but I'd be really interested to hear your opinion on that. So um, that actually somewhat came up in discussion at a, at a conference in, in Birmingham just a few months ago. And there were a couple coaches there um, from the UK and they were talking about um, about recovery and specific uh, methods for high-level athletes. And one thing that I wanted to bring up but I, I still don't really know enough about is, so, um, you know, you can, you can get a blood, pan, uh, blood panel and you can get your testosterone measured, your free testosterone. One other thing you can get measured is, um, or two other things are um, heart rate variability 
and your uh, gut microbiome profile. And both of those things are things that could be amenable to different nutrition strategies. So for the first one, um, if you really need to compete and you can't really take long breaks uh, and you need to sustain your performance, uh, certain ad adaptogenic herbs don't have a ton of evidence, but sometimes they sort of work miracles for people. And for the second category, <laughs> I don't know if, uh, if you guys in the UK are able to buy um, uh, gut microbiome sampling kits, uh, but they've had them in the US for a year or two. And I think that might be relatively more important for an athlete than for somebody else because um, like we just, we covered a trial on pistachios and performance, exercise performance somewhat recently. And uh, the researchers hypothesized that because pistachios uh, were sort of nutritional powerhouses and, and, you know, all those buzzwords, that they might improve performance in a, in a cycling endurance trial. And what they found is the opposite. Um, they found that the more pistachios lower the performance and they did a, a metabolomic study and found that's probably gut mediated. And uh, one confounding factor was that the harder you exercise, the more permeable your gut lining is. So I always wondered, you know, take some athletes, uh, sample their gut microbiome uh, during a break and then uh, right before and right after an event and see what's going on and see if you can change it with pre and probiotics of different strains. Um, it's not something I've seen a ton of papers on and uh, really the first trial just in rats uh, was last year on um, microbiome and athletic performance and that's something that I think could develop pretty rapidly in the next few years. I'm going to be interested to, uh, to see how that evolves because you know, that's one thing that I, I keep hearing from various dietitians is you know, gut health and, and how it relates to, to just general health and performance as well. Um, so if, if that's the stuff that works and that's, that's worth the, the time and money and, and attention that people have to give, what do you consider to be some of the biggest wastes of, of those things? Um, so the couple of things that we pretty much always cite is uh, testosterone boosting supplements uh, because of a couple of things. One is that even if a testosterone boosting supplement seems to do something, it often affects libido, not testosterone directly. Um, second thing is that, you know, the, the issue with supplementing in general is that the body is fairly smart and has redundant control mechanisms. So if you eat something, it's not like it boosts your energy right away um, on a sustainable basis. And in regards to testosterone boosting, if a supplement works, it often only works for a few days or a couple of weeks, and then you're back at either the level you started with or you're back at a lower level. So testosterone boosting um, supplements, not so great. The other category is fat loss supplements. So whether it's direct fat loss supplements or appetite control supplements, um, they just really typically don't work that well. But there might be some things appetite control-wise that aren't supplements that I think people don't use as often. So... Um, you know, more and more people are using uh, intermittent fasting as a strategy um, and having their first meal be high in protein. And that's a, that's a great way, I think, to simplify your diet if you're stressed out in different ways. Um, it's not for everybody. Um, and there are some issues with, uh, with certain women also using intermittent fasting as compared to males. But um, I think that might be better than, than fat loss supplements. 
Um, and another really, really simple thing that um, almost nobody pays attention to anymore is water intake. So obviously you don't have to drink eight glasses of water a day or cups of water, and that kind of came out of nowhere. But um, <clears throat> there was a study just a few months ago where uh, they gave habitually high water drinkers lower water intake, and then they gave habitually low water drinkers higher intake, and they stuck them in a metabolic ward, you know, in an inpatient setting, not a metabolic ward, but in an inpatient setting, and uh, they gave them questionnaires about their mood. And even after, uh, you know, a washout period and controlling for time and um, adapting, the people who didn't drink as much water, when they drink more water, their moods went way, way, way up in most parameters, and people who didn't drink as much water were in pissy moods. So that's not the best design, but it does show that, especially in people who lose a lot of fluid through exercising, it might be worth paying attention to drinking more water. And second thing is that people usually don't drink hard water uh, because tap water doesn't have a lot of minerals, and there's really no easy way unless you supplement to get a lot of trace minerals. Um, and you know, our, our water doesn't have much calcium or magnesium or that kind of thing, but um, just correlational evidence shows that in areas with more magnesium, there's less heart attacks. Um, in areas with more lithium in their water, there's less suicides. Uh, so I think there's something to be said for um, either drinking hard water some of the time, or maybe even uh, supplementing with some of that extract of um, hard water so that you're getting sort of natural water instead of the water that doesn't do things other than hydrate you, which granted is very important, but might as well get extra benefits. Absolutely. Are, are there any kind of uh, techniques or diets or methods that you think are uh, kind of scams rather than just products? Yeah, so, um, you know, scams abound. Um, like, I don't want to be too harsh judging people, but, you know, like you said, there is a large contingent of people who drink uh, fatty coffee every morning and there isn't really great evidence for that um, and uh, some people who do that uh, have unhealthily high body weights and it's maybe not great to, to get a lot of extra butter um, and you know coconut is great but you don't have to take a ton of it and um, satiation is not really very high from drinking fatty coffee, um, so, so that's one obvious thing. But <clears throat> there's a lot of other things, a lot of more subtle things. So, Mike, uh, if it fits your macros, I think it's uh, it's commendable because um, it speaks to a truth about body composition. On the other hand, what's more important for body co composition? Is it you know a 10 or 20 calorie swing one way or the other? Or is it that you're eating healthy and you're not getting hurt? Uh, because in my previous uh, role as a pain researcher and gym rat, really the main thing is avoiding injury. And when you have injury, treating injury. And it's very important to support your repair mechanisms. And that's not really something that comes up a lot in the lifting world. And it's something that I would wish would come up more often. And you're not going to achieve that with the uh, Pop-Tarts? No, Pop-Tarts actually are not that great for recovery. I don't know if it's oh, really? <laughs> yeah. One thing that uh, this uh, journalist just sent us an email. They were writing an article on bone broth, and they wanted to know what the evidence was. So there's no evidence directly for bone broth. There aren't like a lot of bone broth trials out there. But uh, have you ever made bone broth? 
at home? I haven't. I've, I've encountered rugby players who swear it's added years to their career, but I think so, that's just the power of placebo. Yeah, so I find that to be so interesting because bone broth is usually pretty stinky. Uh, if you just you know put bones in the slow cooker or pressure cooker, then um, it's going to stink up your apartment or house. Uh, you what they used to do back in the day is make sort of perpetual stews with meat on the bone, and that gives some of the same benefits as bone broth. Uh, the stuff that ends up in the broth, the good side is that it's you really get some things around the bone and the joint that you might want. You know, there's that old saying, "Eat what ails you," and people in Eastern cultures do that more often. Like when I used to live in Chinatown, uh, I would get tendon, slice it up, and sort of make a a pho sort of soup, and it tasted great. And, ten, and tendon has a ton of collagen and, and other good stuff if you get it um, along with meat on the bone. On the other hand, there's actually not a ton of minerals in the bone broth. So it's not like you're getting all this calcium or, you know, all your nutritional needs through the bone broth. And while it might be comforting and have certain compounds, it's, it's not a panacea. And people really make it out to be a panacea, which isn't harmful as much as just really time-consuming. Because if you set out to make bone broth every day and it's not helping you and you don't like the taste, which a lot of people do, then you're wasting your time and you could be directing that time towards learning things, for example. Yeah, well, I'm, um, I'm, I'm obviously from the UK, but I, I live in Sydney. And uh, there was oh. a guy that just caught some, some flack from the press in Sydney because he wrote a, a paleo cooking book where... He advised parents to replace um, baby formula with um, bone broth, and it turns out it's got something like a thousand percent of the RDA for certain fat-soluble vitamins for kids. Oh wow, that's insane! I can't believe he because uh, yeah, he like, gets like culture is one thing, but kids is yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it's dude. Seriously, in Sydney, the the whole paleo culture is just off the charts. It's interesting. So is that some is that a recent thing, or is it has it been that way for a while? Uh, well, I've been there for two years, and it's definitely. I think it's just the, it's the aspects of the outdoor culture that just get taken to extremes. Okay. Um, you know, people not eating off of plastic. Just it, you can't eat it unless it's been organically grown and you know, pruned by a virgin and all this stuff. It's <laughs> mostly BS, I think. But um, just moving on to your your blog. You don't just write about supplements, you write about other interesting areas within nutritional science and health. Can you kind of talk about which topics have proved to be most popular on the blog and also what, what you're finding interesting at the moment as, as, a, as an organization? Yeah, sure. So the very last post we put up uh, was extremely popular. It was about the study that just came out last week about low carb versus low fat <clears throat> and in a very controlled inpatient setting. Um, testing the uh, <clears throat> carbohydrate insulin theory of obesity, which more or less says that carbs are a uniquely fattening macronutrient and the best or sort of the only way to efficiently lose fat is to dramatically lower carbohydrate intake. So um, Kevin Hall is a researcher at the National Institute of Health in the U.S. and he did a six-day study, which is very short, but it costs a lot of money to do these studies, so you're never going to get a six-month one. <clears throat> and uh, they tested whether an equal reduction in carbs versus an equal reduction in fat um, in, a, in a controlled diet with uh, both DEXA scans done 
and indirect calorimetry to test how much carbs and fat you're burning, um, what the effect is after a few days. And they found that uh, the lower fat diet burn more fat than the lower carb diet. There's a lot of caveats. So the low fat diet was super low fat. It was like 17 grams of fat, which means like two packs of butter and incidental fat. Uh, the low carb diet was not low carb or very low carb. It was 140 grams of carbs. So there are a lot of research issues there. We went through all of them. Um, we, we, I took all day this past Sunday and three quarters of the day the past Saturday and just read and read and read references until my brain was full um, and it ended up working out. So the researcher, Kevin Hall, uh, tweeted that our, our write-up was pretty accurate. Uh, we wrote to him and asked him to clarify a couple things. Um, it's, it looks like a pretty simple paper and the media headlines were that low carb loses to low fat and that's about as far from the truth as you can get because the study was not a knock on low carb. It was just a test of a certain theory of obesity, more or less. So um, that's really, really popular. Carbs and fat, two of the most popular issues. I wish it wasn't so because the level of carbs and the level of fat you eat, I kind of say, who cares? You know, people who are interested because they just got into nutrition or people who saw a lot of weight loss with low carbs, sure. But um, it's a lot more important to look at the quality of your fats and the quality of your carbs. So like two carbs are not the same, two fats are not the same. Like one type of carb could be, uh, you know, in, in a broccoli, avocado, something dish that for somebody is healthy and for somebody else causes them severe stomach distress and might hurt their gut. Um, fats, you might think that you're not eating a lot of fat or you're eating healthy fats, but it takes two or three years to turn over the fatty acids in your adipose tissue. So you really have to pay attention to the fats you eat or else over time you're going to pay for it. So those are the issues that we think about a lot at Examine because uh, we're increasingly going to be writing more and more about um, nutrients we don't already have covered. Uh, so specific fatty acids, perhaps even foods. And those are the issues that I think are more important in practicality. So um, like I talked about that pistachio trial, what foods are important for most people before, after endurance or lifting? Um, are there studies on what it does to your gut? Um, different types of fat, could they be used in kids who have ADHD? Um, could you use a certain type of carbohydrate um, if you have bad bowel movements? You know, those are very practical issues. Um, I think it's probably a little bit more important than 20 grams versus 40 grams of carbs. Absolutely. Um, so what kind of uh, products do you offer on, on the site that people can use to enhance their own knowledge? So uh, we have three products. They're all information. Um, one of them, our, our first one, is the Supplement Goals Reference Guide. Um, and that basically is a, a ton of centralized information, studies, uh, everything that we've done sorted by goals. So um, if you're looking at uh, you know, reducing nausea, if, if you're looking at um, some specific facet of um, heart disease like arrhythmias, then that's, that's the thing to get. It's beastly, it's big, it's great, great as a reference guide. Second thing is stack guides. Um, the stack guides are somewhat of the opposite. So it's still a goal, an overarching goal now. So fat loss, muscle gain, um, you know, uh, supplements for older folks. And it puts out recommendations by us in very plain language. So if you only have 
15 minutes and you have a big problem in your life and you haven't been able to get over it, this could push you over. So like if you can't sleep or uh, if you're depressed, we're not going to solve your depression, but we have a pretty simple, easy to read, objective, thoroughly reviewed stack guide on mood and depression. Um, and we go over things that you should definitely do, definitely consider things that have a good deal of evidence but aren't part of a base stack. Uh, things that don't have as much evidence and things you really have to watch out for. And we passed it by uh, doctors of pharmacy uh, to make sure that we have the correct interactions in there and we're accurate in everything we say. And the third product is the one that I find most interesting because I've always been really interested in nutrition from when I was a kid um, and reading studies. It's the um, <coughs> examine.com research digest, ERD. So every month we look at eight of the most important, most interesting studies from the past few months, and we do an extremely thorough, deep dive, ripping apart the study and putting it back together again and saying how it applies to normal people. Um, and we pass that by a ton of different people. We pull in uh, stats experts or um, certain physicians or even MD-PhDs to see if they can add things. And the I learn something new every every month, really. So, like uh, a couple months ago, we had a paper on uh, why is it that butter has different health effects than does cream and milk, even if they have the same fat level in a certain trial. And it's because of a thing called the milk fat globule membrane, um, which makes it so that our body's interaction with the fat that we eat is different because cream has that and milk has that, but butter doesn't. And when you do things like pasteurize, homogenize, you know, very quickly blend something, then those membranes uh, can become collapsed. So that's on the health side. I also find out a lot about performance because we always cover the most important studies for lifting and for running and cycling and things like that. Um, so I find that to be extremely exciting and uh, we love it when, uh, when people ask us questions about that and we have a forum uh, solely for people who subscribe to that on Facebook. and. It's pretty intelligent conversation, which is a little bit hard to get on Facebook, given that anybody can comment on anything unless it's a private forum. Well, that's you know, this has been absolutely awesome, Kamal. I have to say thank you very much because um, I've I've long found your website to be like an island swimming in a sea of bullshit. So it's it's been awesome <laughs> to talk to you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much.